I read an article not long ago in a magazine called GQ. And I don't think I had ever opened a GQ magazine before, for those of you who don't know, and hopefully all of you don't know. It's a men's magazine. But it caught my attention because I saw this um, the article advertised on the front cover, and it said, The New Christian Sex Craze. And I was like, funny there'd be a new Christian sex craze, and GQ knows about it and I don't. So I thought I'd look that up. <laughs> and I found out it was really just the same old Christian sex craze of wait until you're married. I don't know what was new about it, but this guy apparently who wrote it, it was a brand new idea. And he kind of spent the whole time in the article making fun of the idea that you would wait actually until you're married before you have sex. And at the end, though, it was really interesting. I wish I could have gotten a quotation from it. I should have just taken the, the ending paragraph. But it was just astounding. He ends up kind of saying, in summary, these guys are waiting until their wedding night for sex, and they think it's going to be so incredible, but, you know, they're going to hit their wedding nights, and they're going to go, that? That was it? That was what I was waiting for? And I thought, ha, Buster, you just shot yourself in the foot, because you just proved what we've been saying all along, that the reason why sex doesn't bring all the fulfillment that you think it will is because you're having it in the wrong context. Premarital sex, as somebody uh, says, it seems to be a, uh, that people are having it more and enjoying it less than ever before. And I think it's true. It's absolutely true. This guy's testimony was, man, these Christian guys think that sex is going to be so wonderful. It's not that wonderful. I mean, and you think about it. What about all these magazines? You know, you see the magazines when you're checking out at the grocery store. 52 positions your boyfriend wishes you knew. I mean, really. The problem is these people are just plain bored with sex. They started having it at 13, and it wasn't all it was cracked up to be. It's not like it was in the movie, so I must have the wrong person. And then so they try it a few more times with a few more people, and it still isn't what the, it seemed like in the movie. So if you're, well, maybe, maybe I'm bisexual. I don't know. And they start, well, maybe it's just the wrong position. You know, the problem is they've got the wrong idea because marital sex is what God had created. Premarital sex is something that the devil has created. And, and like every other thing that the devil has tried to morph out of what God has made, it ends up being ugly. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil was not anything like the tree of life, was it? But the fruit tasted good, and people were foolish enough to eat it. And over and over throughout history, people have been foolish enough to do the same stupid things and not learn from other people's mistakes. And now more than ever before... Now, some, if, if the guy who wrote that article were sitting here in the audience, probably he'd raise his hand and go, oh, come on, what's the difference with just a piece of paper? What's the difference between marriage, you know, sex before you get married and sex after you get married? Well, you know, I would give an example. Imagine that you have found your perfect bicycle. Here's the store, and you have been dreaming all your life of the bicycle you want to have. Someday, you know, you, you've been thinking, I want to have a bicycle It's going to be this color. It's going to have this many speeds. For the girl, you know, they're probably thinking, this is the color of bicycle I want. For the guy, he's going, this is the kind of bicycle I want, right? But you've got your, your dream bicycle. Here it is in the store right in front of you. Now imagine that you look around. Nobody's looking. You pull that bicycle off the rack and you take it, walk right out of the store, and nobody stops you. You get outside, your heart's going to be pounding, isn't it? You just stole a bicycle. But it's yours. You look around. Nobody's following you. You get on, you ride away, it's your bicycle. You got it. You may have that bicycle, 
But how are you going to ride it? For the rest of your life, when you ride that bicycle, you're looking over your shoulder, aren't you? Every time you see the blue lights, <gasps> did I get caught? Now what if, on the other hand, you go find that bicycle in the store, so you go back to your um, job and you start working. You work hard, you work long hours, maybe you work for a whole year, maybe you work five years. But you save up the money, and one day you walk into that store, and you pay the money, and you walk out, and that bicycle is mine. What's the difference in those two feelings? So it's your bicycle either way, right? You got it, you ride it whenever you want to, it's your bicycle. But it's all different, isn't it? Now, it might be even more thrilling to ride the stolen bicycle than to ride the bicycle that you paid for. But which one is more fulfilling? You see, it's all different. The piece of paper is not the difference. It's the commitment, the love relationship. You see, when people have sex when they're not married, the bottom line is they're stealing from each other. They're cheating each other. And both of them know this is not an act of love. You cannot make love outside of marriage because it's not love when you're stealing from each other. And both of you know this is a selfish act. I'm getting what I want. You're getting what you want. You know, maybe we... we're. We care a lot about each other, but the more sex you have when you're not married, the more that tends to be your focus. Just like the more physical involvement you have, the less you communicate. Um, it, it's just a, it's a double-edged sword. The more you try to build intimacy, the less you actually have. Now, some of you, I know you've, you've already made the mistake of having sex outside of marriage, and it's a tremendous disappointment, um, but it doesn't mean that God cannot restore your gift of purity. We're going to be talking about that a little bit more tomorrow. But I just want to encourage you. You know, you can feel like, I've lost it now. What does it matter? My wedding night isn't going to be beautiful because I didn't save myself anyway. That's not true. God can give beauty for ashes. And there's nothing that he cannot restore and make beautiful again. <clears throat> but for those of you who haven't made that mistake, don't. I really encourage you. You know, I was just in this panel discussion at Southern and... Um, Brandy, one of the others in the um, panel, we were, you know, there were three couples up in the front and, and the students could ask any question they wanted to ask. And one student wrote in the question, did you have premarital sex? I think they were just kind of trying to goof off and embarrass us. But Brandy said, you know what? Yes, I did. And she started to cry and she said, I'm so sorry that I did it. It was before I was a Christian and I'm, I'm so sad about it. But she said, Sex with my husband is a million times better than what I had before I was married. And I praise God that she had the courage to stand up and say that. I couldn't have said that since I didn't experience that myself. I didn't make that choice. But because she made a bad choice, now she can witness to others and help them. And God will do just, you know, this is something I see over and over. When the devil has a club and he's beating us with it, we give our lives to Christ Christ takes that hand out of the devil's hands and he hands it to us. And he says, now you go beat the devil with it. <laughs> and God will give you the gift of using your testimony to help other people and encourage other people in their walk with Christ. Now, um, I want to share with you something that I think has been really meaningful for me in understanding how, how beautiful it is to have the sexual relationship that God has designed and how cheap the world makes it, but how hard it is to distinguish um, I want you to imagine that your body is a house, all right? Your whole life you've lived in this house. You've never been out of the house. This house is where you spent every second of your life. And you know every corner of this house except one. There's one room that you've never gone into. That room 
is the room that will someday link your house with the house of your best friend for life. Your two houses will become one house. And this room, you know, you might want to imagine it as an underground room. No windows. Nobody else in the world can see into your room. Someday, <coughs> excuse me, someday, you and your best friend will unlock those doors and you'll go into that room and you'll decorate it just the way you want it. And it'll be your room. The two of you will be the only ones who get to ever go into this room. Nobody else knows about it. Nobody else can see into this sacred, secret room. It's a beautiful, precious experience for just the two of you. Now, that's how God has designed things. But, you know, the problem is, when you go out on your street, you look at all the other houses on your street, and all the other houses, their secret room has become their front porch. And they've decorated it so beautifully, you know, it tells all of who I am, their favorite colors, their beautiful streamers, whatever it is, their artwork, the, their most comfortable furniture, whatever it is. This room that expresses the deepest, innermost part of who they are, it's now become their front porch. And you know, when you look at all the other houses on your street and their incredible front porches that look so attractive, so appealing, your house looks pretty drab. You know, you can hang a couple of flower pots in the front, but it doesn't look anything like all these front porches. You know, your house is just this gray, flat slab in comparison. It's hard not to want to dress it up, huh? Just at least show a little bit of your secret room. See, I have a secret room, too. Mine may not be fully out there, but it, it's pretty cool, too. I'm really special, too, right? This is the way that the world views sex. I mean, honestly, isn't this the way it is? If you don't dress in something sexy, people think, oh, come on. Look at her, she's such a prude. If you don't talk about sex with your friends, guys, you know, oh, him again, you know, the Holy Joe. The world has made it into something that almost measures how much are you worth? How, how special are you? How bright is your secret room? But how cheap it is. Don't you think for people who've already had all of that and then, you know, later on they, they try to salvage their secret room and say, well, now it's just for the two of us. Right? And you know, then people who get married, you know, when your sexiness is a heavy part of how valuable you are, how attractive you are, is how good you feel. If you wake up in the morning, your hair looks great, you look really hot in whatever you're wearing, you feel good when you walk out the door that day because the opposite sex is going to look at you. I'm thinking from a girl's perspective here. What happens when you're married and now you belong to this guy? And the initial thrill, it's wonderful. Wow, you're married. You finally crossed the finish line. You've arrived. But you know, courtship is more thrilling than marriage is, in my experience. I love my husband. I would never want to go back and not be married. It's great being married to him. But courtship and dating was much more thrilling. Marriage is much more fulfilling. It's secure. It's committed. He's there with me forever. I don't have to go back to my house tonight and he goes back to his house. We're together. Oh, it's wonderful. <laughs> it's great, but it's not as thrilling. You know, that first time, you know how it is when you hold your hands for the first time. Oh, he's holding my hand. And then, you know, later on, well, holding hands kind of wears off. And now you want to do a little bit more. So you put your arms around each other and you snuggle in church. And everybody looks, oh, you feel so good. You walk through the mall with your arms around each other. But after a while, that thrill wears off too. You want to go a little bit farther. This is one of the main problems, incidentally, with dating um, successful, successively. You know, you date this person, then you break up when problems occur. Not only does that train you for divorcing when problems occur later on, but also it, 
as far as you go in, in one relationship physically, have you noticed this? You know, if you get as far as holding hands with the first guy you date, then the next guy, or, you know, with the first girl you date, you get as far as holding hands. The next one, as soon as you start dating, bang, you tend to start on holding hands and move to the next one. You've got to show a little bit more physical commitment this time. So you start going a little farther, a little farther. Well, 10 relationships down the road, where are you? So you want to save those things. The reason why our kiss at our wedding was so fabulous, and it was, it wasn't because it was an amazing kiss, though. It wasn't like we got up there and necked until everybody's going, ah, stop, please. <laughs> it was a simple, sweet, chaste kiss. And there it was. It was all finished. But it was wonderful because of the commitment and the love and how we'd saved ourselves and anticipated this kiss. It was beautiful. And I wouldn't want to cheat myself out of that. I think, you know, even though I had kissed guys before and he had kissed girls before, it was different this time. Not because the action was any different, but because the meaning was so much richer. And that's what you want to have. Now, in the, in the secret room allegory, there's, there's a passageway that leads to that secret room. The passageway is something called devotional life. I don't know how else to put it, but you know, this is what happens. As you build day by day an intimacy with Christ, Christ helps you to be secure in who you are so that you can be vulnerable with other people. I can open up and share myself with my husband. I can tell him, not just physically, but emotionally. I can tell him how I feel, my needs, my fears, because my self-worth isn't based on, what if he rejects me? I'm worth nothing if my husband rejects me. That can't be the foundation for a solid marriage or a solid relationship emotionally or physically because then you're forever afraid, but if he really knows how I feel, if he knew that I felt angry with him right now, then he would, he would reject me. This is often why people are teddy bears, afraid of conflict, because they think if she really knows what I'm like, if she really knows that I don't feel happy with her all the time, she'll reject me. She won't want me. And that security can come only from Christ, from a solid relationship with Him. And that's the passageway to having a beautiful secret room experience. The only way you can really come to where you can be completely naked and not ashamed with another human being, not thinking about, what do I look like? What does he think of my body? What does she think of my sexual prowess? The only way you can get to that point where you're not thinking about yourself, and the bottom line in that sexual experience, is if you're... you're identity and your security is built on Christ, his love for you, so that you can be naked and not ashamed. Yes, this is the way God made me. Yes, this is the ordained relationship that God has given to the two of us. And it's beautiful, but what would it be like? You know, I think sometimes I can't even imagine what it would be like for a person, if, if I were trying to have emotional and physical ultimate vulnerability experience with someone who I don't even know, how would, how shameful, you know, I'd be afraid people are going to find out, people are going to catch us. Or somebody's going to, you know, what's he going to think of me? How is he going to compare me to the last girl or to all the other girls? What a sad experience for something so precious and beautiful that God has designed for us. See, God wants us to go through the passageway and it takes time building a relationship day by day, week by week, year by year with him so that whatever happens to us in this world, we can go on with a smile on our, heart, our face and a song in our hearts because Jesus loves me. This I know, for the Bible tells me so. I don't have to worry about what anybody else thinks of me. I don't have to fear 
being rejected because no matter what happens to me, eternity is where my home is. I'm just living here as a pilgrim and a stranger. What people think of me, you know, we read that Jesus was never elated by applause or depressed by censure. I can't remember what the word is. Not depressed, but he, he was dejected. dejected by censure. Right. That was because Jesus' security was completely in his father's love. He knew his father loved him, and therefore he could love the world. Have you ever thought of how Jesus loved Judas? How could Jesus not just love Judas, but love Judas unconditionally, knowing full well that Judas was going to reject him? Could you get into a relationship with somebody knowing full well, I'm going to date this person, I'm going to give my heart completely to this person, I'm going to marry them, and then they're going to run off with another person and cheat on me and break my heart. Could you do that? Jesus did that. He loved Judas. He accepted Judas into his inner circle knowing that because he loved Judas, it was going to hurt so much more when Judas rejected him. But Jesus loved Judas. He was just like that. He knew, okay, it's going to hurt. But life is not about preserving myself from pain. Life is about learning to love. Now, in a, in a marriage relationship, as you, well, before you get into the marriage relationship, as you move through that process of growing closer to God and building your, your security off of your relationship with Him, knowing God loves me, God has created me exactly the way I am, and He will never leave me or forsake me. That is the climate in which you can develop the maturity to be vulnerable with other people. You can not only get out and say, go culportering. For me, it was really hard to go out culportering, go knock on people's doors. Oh, I just, I hated rejection. But eventually I learned, you know what? I can do this when I'm depending on Christ. People would come up to me and say, oh, you, you sell books door to door? Oh, I could never do that. I just couldn't ask people for money. And I'd think, you know what? You could if you loved them enough. Because you'd see, if you don't ask money for, for the books, they're probably not going to value them very much. What's the worth of leaving books at people's houses when they go, yeah, you know, how many of you have gotten books from Jehovah's Witnesses? You gotten a book from a Jehovah's Witness before? How many of you have read them? They just, <laughs> I have, but it was only to trade, you know, I'll read your book, you read my book. <laughs> you just don't value something that you don't pay for. Another reason why premarital sex is not as valuable and, and a wonderful experience as marital sex. Anyway, so the world will tell you, put your secret room out on your front porch. You'll have a fabulous time. Everybody will think you're attractive. You'll feel wonderful. But, you know, just like the illustration I was sharing earlier about my husband talking to this girl who came to him saying, you know, guys are all such jerks. Nobody ever wants to have a real relationship. They all just want sex. And she was wearing this provocative clothing. What else did she expect? What kind of guys was she going to attract? The quality guys? We're going to go up next. And the non-quality guys, we're going to go, ooh, there's where I can get some fun for free. <laughs> don't, don't advertise what's not for sale. If you, if you really want to have a beautiful and precious secret room experience, I would encourage you not just to say, okay, well, I'm saving, I'm saving the ultimate act for my wedding night, but to say, okay, how far can I stay away from that line? How pure can I be? How much can I save? Because the more time and love you put into building your relationship before you express it physically, 
the more powerful and rewarding that physical expression is going to be. Now, of course, in case you haven't noticed, Hollywood does not paint it quite this way. You, you find more in the movies. I don't know if you uh, watch a whole lot of these movies. Hopefully not. But in the movies, <coughs> they usually have the same kind of random romance line. I shouldn't get together with you. You shouldn't get together with me. Maybe we get in a big fight first off. You know, whatever it is, I hate him. He hates me. But then it happens. <gasps> We're thrown onto a desert island together or whatever ridiculous, impossible thing happens. One way or another, the two of us who know intellectually we are totally not suited to each other, we fall in love. And maybe he's already married to somebody else and maybe I'm already married to somebody else, but we have to follow our hearts. You wouldn't want to you know, cheat yourself by not following your heart, would you? Incidentally, what does the Bible say about following your heart? The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Do you want to follow your heart? You don't want to know where it's going to take you. I'll tell you that. Um, the, world, the, world, the world will give you this, this fantasy picture of how things go. And, you know, in novels, it's not just movies. Novels, TV, um, music. You know, I used to be addicted to music. I, I really liked the, the sappy love songs, you know. Oh, what, some of them, they're just hilarious when you actually listen to the words, when you're not listening to the music. It's just, I know you're so bad for me, but I can't stop loving you. I can't help falling in love with you. Oh, please. You know, do you know what falling is? Have you, have any of you have ever fallen down? It is not, is not a picnic. You do not want to fall. My, my daughter, one time, um, she was, she was leaning over the edge of this chair. Uh, it was, you know, one of these big armchairs. She was leaning over the edge of the chair, watching while I changed her brother's dirty diaper down on the floor right below her. And all of a sudden, she leaned a little too far. And she fell face first, smack, right in the poopy diaper. I'm afraid I found this rather hysterically funny. <laughs> but I was trying not to laugh. You know, that, that constitutes falling. You do not want to fall. You do not mean to fall. You fall. And you are sorry you fell. <laughs> that is not how you will ever get into love. You will fall in many things in your life. You will fall in lust if you're not careful. You will fall in poop if you're not careful. But you will never, never fall in love. Amen. Now, love is something that I instead would say you crawl into. This is what I felt. when I remember when Alan and I were dating. Um, I would think, you know, what I'm doing here is crawling into love. I'm purposely, slowly going into this thinking, yeah. I like that about this guy. Yeah, I like that too. You know, I really think I can trust him. He had this conversation with me today and he was humble. He told me, man, I, I, think, I, I think I didn't do a really good job in my class this morning. And, and he'd say, I should, have, I should have done this differently. I think, you know, he's humble. He doesn't try to tell me how wonderful he is. Ah, I had a good sermon today. The Lord blessed. Fifteen people are going to be baptized now. All because of my efforts. He wasn't like that. He was, he was honest. He was humble. And little bit by little bit, as I saw more and more of his character, as well as his personality, I said, yeah, this is a guy I'd like to spend my life with. You know, I talked in an earlier presentation about the two ways you want to choose your spouse. Character, how much is this person like Jesus? And personality, how much is this person like me? Or how well do we match up together? Can we mesh together and make a solid ministry? 
Or is he going to be wanting to travel all over the place while I'm just desperately trying to say, please, can we just stay home? I can't stand going one more place. You know, you can make a happy marriage in almost any kind of situation if both of you are committed to Christ. But it's great if the two of you have a lot of things in common. You want to go hiking together. You want to spend your Saturday evenings with a whole bunch of friends at your house popping popcorn. What it is, you want to, you want to have somebody that you have a lot in common with because the less, the more you have in common, the less conflicts you're going to have to work through. And already in the world that we live in nowadays, people are so different. The backgrounds we grow up in are so widely varied. You know, a lot of people come from broken homes. If your parents didn't get divorced, they may not have gotten along very well. You learn some poor conflict management skills. People watch a lot of TV that, you know, kind of shows all the wrong ways to build relationships. And one way or another, there are a lot of things that you have to work through in conflicts in marriage these days. You don't need to add a lot of other things. So, you know, it's just wise to keep your eyes open, crawl into love. But that's not what you'll see in the movies. That's not what you hear in music. That's not what you hear in, in most anything that you hear from Hollywood. <clears throat> and, of course, we all want to have marriages just like the ones that we see being acted out in Hollywood. Um, <laughs> It lived out in Hollywood, maybe I should say. You know, whatever, uh, for as long as we both shall love instead of for as long as we both shall live. It's just a recipe for disaster. But the tricky thing is, because we live in a media-saturated culture, we see painted everywhere we look this way of living. When I lived in New York City, everywhere I looked, it just seemed like there were advertisements. I remember one day my sister and I were walking home from church, and we are just like, I'm so sick of seeing ads. We're just going to look at the sky. So we, we probably looked a little dorky walking down New York City streets, but we're walking along looking at that little narrow ribbon of blue sky between the skyscrapers. And you know what? A blimp went across with an ad on it. <laughs> that, that's the kind of, of world we live in right now. It's hard to find anywhere to put our eyes that isn't full of this media-saturated culture of follow your heart. Do what you feel like doing. You've got to do what you don't want to miss out, you know. Don't miss out on the love of your life, even if you're already married to someone else. And intellectually, we know this is a terrible way to live. But why are millions of people following that track every day? Because what, what we behold changes us. By beholding, we become changed. And what you behold will change who you are. Now, when I was much younger, young and foolish... I had a plan for my life. I was going to be a writer. I knew what I was going to do, and I loved to write. And still do. That's why I'm writing my book uh, that I told everybody about earlier. <clears throat> but we're just friends. Um, but I was going to write novels back then. And one of my friends, Dana, Dana and I, we were going to write novels together. Oh, we had it all planned. We were going to have our pen name, Danica. And Danica would write novels. And we were going to be famous. Well, we had this great imagination. So we would make up daydreams. And we would spend hours on the phone with each other. You know, I made up in the neatest daydream the other day. I was like 12. Okay, don't get excited. Maybe 10. And, and so we'd tell each other, you know, I, I, I was pretending that we were kidnapped by Indians. And the two of us, you know, they, they put us in their teepee. We're all tied up and they were going to sacrifice us. But two of the braves fell in love with us. So they rescued us. This is a true story. I kid you not. We, we cooked this up. And so they rescued us and they put us on the backs of their horses and we galloped off into the sunset. And of course, they're, uh, their uh, fellow braves were shooting at us, and they both got wounded, but they gallantly protected us and saved our lives. And You know, it, it sounds really funny now, but back then, 
I had such a good imagination that I would sometimes sit and look out my window, and I'd look at the woods, and I could just almost see that Indian coming out of the woods on his horse. It was white. It was always white. He, wore, he rode a white horse. I mean, what can I say? I couldn't argue with the guy. It was his horse. And he, he, wore, he rode a white horse, and he'd come right out of the woods. And in my imagination, I would run out of the house with my hair streaming back, even though I didn't have long hair, and leap on the back of his horse, and we'd gallop off together. And it was so real, because I could imagine it so intensely that it was almost like I could just, just about see the guy coming out of the woods in his horse. I had a serious imagination. But you know what? People in Hollywood have a serious imagination, and the problem is they can paint it so it looks believable. They can make it so the horse comes out of the, the woods, or at least appears to. And if over and over you behold this, you know, in the movie, that's the way it happened. It always happens that way. I mentioned earlier some of my friends who were in a bad relationship knew they needed to get out of it, and then they watched Titanic together. And she got pregnant not long after that. They got married, and they've lived miserably ever after. It's, it's no picnic, you know. Just people get into relationships, and even if they don't get married, they can wreck years of their lives in these disastrous relationships. Just realize, you know, dating seems so wonderful, so innocuous. It's all so perfectly wonderful, you know. He likes me, I like him. We look at each other across the room. It's wonderful. But, you know, there are two things that are going to happen if you start dating this person. Either, A, you're going to get married to them, or B, you're going to break up with them. Those are realities, the harsh realities of life. And if you're going to get married to that person, you better be sure that that's the one that stands out above all the others that you know. Not just, well, he was nice and he liked me and I liked him. And that's the way it went. Choose wisely because hopefully you'll have only one chance to choose. And if you're going to break up, why do it over and over? Why get together with somebody that you're going to lose your friendship with them? I just... I can't see, you know, I, I had several good friends who were guys, and once I cultivated a romantic interest in them, even if we didn't date each other, and then we moved on, you know, we'd realize this isn't going to happen or whatever, I lost those friendships. Whereas the guys that I was friends with, and maybe I even was aware that they liked me, or maybe even I was interested in them, but I wasn't confident, you know, this is where God's leading, it's not the right time, or whatever it was, so I didn't express anything to them, they didn't express anything to me. Those guys mostly are still my friends. If you want to keep the friends that you have now, if you have quality relationships with opposite sex friends and you want to keep those friends in 10 years from now, you still want to be friends with them, don't start dating them casually. It messes things up so much of the time. But we live in a culture that says, if you feel like it, do it. If you want to get into this relationship, get into it. What's wrong? Have fun. You know, you'll hear that everywhere you go, from maybe even your parents. My mom certainly didn't understand some of these principles that I'm sharing with you back when I was young. And she would say, well, you know, date a lot of guys. Have a lot of fun. You're only young once. Don't get married right off because that's no fun at all. You know, in the world, you notice many times in the movies or music, if you notice in country music, hopefully none of you listen to country music. <gasps> okay, there are a few things that I hate in the world, and that's one of them. But country music has some some really sad lyrics. You know, not either they're, you know, I lost my wife and my dog and my truck and my kids. <laughs> or or it's all about adultery. Have you noticed this? 
There's so much, but because it's all cloaked in words that music, you know, kind of distinguish, kind of disguises what's in there, you just don't notice it. It's absolutely appalling, though. What do what do most of the popular um, cultural things that we see nowadays, the music, the movies, the TV, those kinds of things, what do they do to your mind? Honestly, what, you know, I went in a, a movie, what do you call it, rental place the other day, like Blockbuster or something, and I said, do you have anything that doesn't have any, you know, like, bad language or sex or violence in it? And the guy looks at me blanky, blankly, he's like, um, I can't really think of anything. <laughs> That's pretty sorry, isn't it? You know, what does our culture come to? That you have to have a lot of breaking the Ten Commandments sprinkled all through your movie or else it won't sell. And that's the reality, isn't it? It has to be at least PG, if not R, before people will even rent it. They get things that are only G. What does G mean? Kindergarten. Isn't that the way people see it now? If it's general audience, G-rated, it's, it's for little kids. Even a lot of things that are for little kids now, they're, they're upping them to PG just so that they can make it so that the adults will even rent it. It's very sad. Our culture has gotten addicted to showing that sin does not have consequences. In the movies, how often do you see the girl weeping because the guy has broken up with her and now she's pregnant? How many people get herpes in the movies? It just doesn't happen. You know, the realities of life are not even painted in faintly the, the way that things really are. When do you see, you know, the guy leaves his wicked witch of the West wife and gets together with this glamorous, gorgeous woman and just happens to slay a few dragons along the way or whatever, whatever this plot is. It doesn't resemble reality. Reality, divorce is full of heartbreak, anguish, pain, broken-hearted children. But in our culture... Much, the, much of what we have, um, it just destroys our, our sensibilities to righteousness. I read something recently that said that they, they did some kind of research, and I don't know who was doing this research, but they said they asked young people, if you could take only one thing to a deserted island with you, what would you take? Would it be, I think it was your cell phone, your music, or TV? And the most popular thing with high school-age students was music. They would rather have their music than anything else. Now, what kind of influence does that music have on people? You know, I, uh, my daughter, I, I took her recently to uh, a place where we were, I was thinking about maybe she could have some gymnastics lessons. I went and checked it out. There was no music. There was nothing going on in there inappropriate. I thought, well, you know, she can learn to do somersaults. She's only four. So I took her back later and said, well, you know, shall we check this out? Would you like to see what you think? So we went in there. And there was this pulsating, heavy rock beat music going. And a whole bunch of teenagers dancing this dance routine. So I said, oh, wow, okay. So we went out from there, and I talked to my daughter. I said, there was something in there that bothered me. Do you know what it was? She said, no, Mommy, I don't know. What was it? And I said, there was something wrong about that music. She said, I thought the same thing, Mommy. <laughs> she said, That's, that was rebellious music. <laughs> It, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure out what a lot of today's music does to people. And uh, maybe we should send you all over to the music seminar next door so you could uh, figure out more about that. But, you know, this is the reality. You can listen to a song and it changes how you feel. It changes how you think. 
You know, my baby who's not even a year old can tell me when happy music is playing. I put on a song, he goes, whee, he likes it. He knows happy music is happy music. It's a subconscious thing. You don't have to try to figure out, oh, I think this song is going to make me, oh, I think I feel moody now. That must be what they wanted to make me. You put on the song and it does it to you, doesn't it? It affects your hypothalamus. It passes the frontal lobe where you reason and it affects the way that you think, the way that you feel. You know, you don't invite your beautiful beloved over and set up your nice spaghetti dinner, candles, roses, and then you turn on the CD. That's just not the way it works, is it? We know music affects us. But by beholding, once again, we become changed. I had some friends who even put on music. They decided, you know, they, they were kind of skeptical about these experiments where they say, well, you know, we played music for the mice and all the rock music mice ate each other. And they said, oh, yeah, come on. We'll see how it really is. So they, they had scripture song mice. They, they set up the experiment. They did this themselves. They had one room with, I think it was 10 mice that were listening to scripture songs. And they were at a normal volume for two hours a day. Then they had another room that had the Christian rock mice. And they listened to Christian rock at a normal volume for two hours a day. And then they had a control group in another room that had no music. And I think this lasted for maybe two weeks or something like that. Well, the Christian rock um, mice chewed their way out of their little plastic cage and ran off to the scripture songs room. <laughs> Don't ask me how they can chew through Tupperware, but they did. And... Um, they said, though, my friends told me, I didn't see the mice myself, but they said, you know, I could even hold these two mice, one of the, the, rock, the Christian rock mu- uh, mouse and the other mouse, next to each other, and I could tell which one was the rock music mouse by the fur. Oh, where's the plug-in? I need to plug in the computer over here. They, could, they said the fur was kind of thinned and dulled already for those that were uh, listening to the rock music. I thought that was pretty interesting myself. I'm not going to tell you what you have to do, but I'm going to tell you you need to take the choices that you're making in your entertainment and your spare time to Jesus and ask him, is this something that's pleasing to you? Is this something you can listen to or watch with me? Is this the way you want me to spend my time? Because by beholding, you'll become changed. And here's what I see so often with people. They'll, they'll decide, you know, I'm going to be committed to purity. I'm going to save myself for my wedding night. But they think, well, you know, a little bit of this, a little bit of that, that's not going to stop me from saving myself for my wedding night. And so they step across the boundary. They step across that fence into, you know, I know there's some quicksand out here somewhere, but there's no quicksand right here. See, I'm listening to this and I'm still fine. My daughter, she knows that she shouldn't watch movies that have violence or something, but sometimes she'll watch a Bible movie and, you know, David decides to slay Goliath for some strange reason. And (laughs) she'll... She'll say to me, Mommy, I'm still smiling. See, I'm still smiling even while I watch that bad thing. <laughs> She's trying to prove to me, it's okay, I can watch anything. It's not affecting me. We, we cheat ourselves. We trick ourselves when we kind of say, Oh, it won't affect me to, to see things that are impure. To see, the bottom line, sin without consequences portrayed over and over in music or movies or anything else. I can sin without any consequences. That's the message that our popular culture gives to us. And it's a lie. But if you keep beholding it, it will be hard not to be changed by it. Um, Whatsoever things are pure. 
Whatsoever things are honest, whatsoever things are just, whatsoever things are true, whatsoever things are lovely, whatsoever things are of good report, if there be any virtue and if there be any praise, think on these things. You know, even when I read the news, we don't have TV in our home, but I read the news online. I'll go to CNN.com and see what's going on out there. When I measure what I read on the news by that, there's actually precious little in the news that's really worth reading. You know, every now and then there's some sin that receives justice, but much more of the time it's all about celebrities who are getting away with another ridiculous, you know, endeavor to get attention. Now, you know, and when I, I think of how some people don't end up having the blessing that we had of being able to save ourselves for our wedding night, it just makes me really sad. You know, some of my closest friends have made those mistakes and call me crying afterward. I, we didn't mean to go all the way. I, I just feel so awful. I, I just I feel worthless. I hate myself. But the saddest part is they're stealing from themselves. It's kind of like... If you have an orchard that's your orchard, someday you're going to eat these wonderful peaches. They're juicy, perfect. You know, they're going to be the most wonderful peaches you can imagine. These nice, big peaches. And they're getting there. They look great. They're nice, big peaches. You just can't wait any longer. So you pick the peach and you bite into it. Have you ever, how many of you have ever tasted a green peach? What a disappointment, isn't it? You ever buy a peach and you're like, wow, look at it. It looks incredible. And you bite in. Or even worse. (laughs) The really nasty ones. They were picked green and then they just kind of put them in the store and let them go bad. And you, you bite into it. It's awful. But it looks so good. And that's what happens with people nowadays. Our pop culture tells us it's going to be great. Just wait. It's always wonderful. Everybody else, see how it happens out here? It's not the way it is. But... But we we hear the lie over and over, don't we? Um, I encourage every one of you not to not to steal from yourselves. Instead, to take a different approach, an approach of waiting. Um, honey, you want to come up here? We were we were just talking about this earlier and how we really feel that there are so few people who really get the the benefit of waiting. Yeah, you know, what, what we're talking about with waiting is that sexuality, <clears throat> you know, basically, sexuality these days is something that if it feels good, do it. That's where people are at. But whatever you think is right is generally wrong. So when you feel like, wow, you know, let me just go ahead and do this, that's normally the wrong thing. Um, and that'll, that'll come down to your married relationships too. Now, when we, when we say wait... That feels wrong. It feels like I should have it now. And they went and did a study of these four-year-olds, and they they put down two marshmallows uh, in front of these. Uh, no, sorry, one marshmallow in front of this, these four-year-olds. And the four-year-olds were told, "If you don't eat this marshmallow, I will go and get you another one. But don't touch this marshmallow." So then they would disappear and have a camera on the kid. Come back about 15 minutes later. And if the kid hadn't eaten the marshmallow, they would get a second marshmallow. And then they traced those kids over the next, like, 12 years. And they, they got their scores. That's about 14 years. 14 years. And they got their scores, like on SAT and so on. They got their scores. And they found that the one marshmallow kids, those Once who had eaten wait. the marshmallow right away, they just couldn't wait. They had to grab that marshmallow. Did significantly worse in school. 
They had poor relationships. They had all kinds of problems. And those who had been able to wait on their marshmallows so they could get the second marshmallow, the two marshmallow kids, they ended up doing much better, like 100... It was 210 uh, points higher on the 210 SAT. points higher. And so on just SAT. on the basis of being able to, to wait, to wait. And so what we did, and I dealt with this a little bit more in the previous session, what we become as we wait is more important than what we wait for. And so we need to, to be careful that we don't rush ahead of what God has planned. Now, some people will say, man, I'm just waiting. My wedding night is going to be phenomenal. I mean, it's going to, every single sexual fantasy I've had in my life is going to be fulfilled. <laughs> it's not. <laughs> because the purpose of your wedding night is ministry. It's not about what they can do for you. It's about what you can do to bring them closer to God. It is about an intimacy. It's about a moment. It's, it's a moment pregnant with meaning. And so when you get into the stage where you're waiting, just like I am gonna, I'm going to hold on for that one moment because that's going to fulfill my fantasies, you're waiting for the wrong thing. The reason why God calls you to wait is because He is preparing you to be the kind of person who can be a loving spouse. Thank you. God has plans that are so much higher than anything we can imagine, doesn't He? I'm going to share with you some steps in summary what we're talking about here as well as a couple of other things that you can do to prepare for your wedding night. I've talked about the main thing here and I know I may have emphasized it even too much. You're like, okay, I've already got it now. The way that you live, if you live a life of purity, you're going to have relationships of purity. If you don't, I'm afraid you're going to be terribly disappointed. And the first and most important thing is guard that secret room. The way you dress. When you're, when you're walking out the door, look at yourself. Is this guarding my secret room? The way that you think. What do you look at? Guys, do you take that second look at the magazine cover? Don't do it. The way that you think, the way that you live, the little decisions that you make are what decide how, whether you're going to make those big decisions or not. Um, the way you flirt, you know, the way you spend time with other people. Are you, are you getting... Cheap thrills off of touching somebody who you know you're not really going to marry. Are you getting cheap thrills out of listening to or reading or fantasizing? Any of those things. You know, I had a real problem with daydreaming, like I mentioned earlier. It was terribly hard to get my mind under control. But it was necessary. I had to break away. And stopping reading the novels and things like that, it was desperately hard for me. But one of, it was one of the most crucial things that had to happen for me, giving up my tremendous idol of romantic notions, saying, okay, I'm going to buckle down and be who God called me to be even though I may never get married. I may never have any of those fantasies come true. If I don't go out there and chase guys, if I don't go out there and let them see a little bit of leg, how am I ever going to get a spouse? You know, then there were guys, even my dad sometimes told me, you know, come on, you've got to at least be a little attractive. Can't you put on some makeup or something? The guys aren't even going to go after you. I'm not saying makeup is a sin, but you know, why do you wear it? What, what is your goal? When you look in the mirror before you leave the house, what is your goal? Are you thinking, if I look really good, what am I gonna, you know, who am I gonna attract? You know, I found when I wore a lot of makeup, every time I went past a mirror, I was looking at myself. Get anything smeared? Every time I touched my face, you know, my eye itched, I had to, now I need to find a mirror. Did I smear anything? How does it look? Yeah, I was, I was consciously 
you know, I was constantly conscious of the way that I looked. I felt so much freer after I decided, okay, let me just not mess with that stuff. Not that it's a sin to wear any makeup, but it, it was very freeing for me to stop thinking about consciously, you know, what do I look like? What do they think of me? Um, and focus, as you, as you focus on guarding your secret room, focus on that passageway to it. Rather than building your, your self-esteem, your self-worth on how people think of you. Are you popular? Are you pretty? Are you tall enough? Are you big enough? Are you strong enough? Are you good at everything? Focus on your relationship with God. As long as He is pleased with you, nothing else matters. Um, I want to emphasize also the difference between love and lust. Make your life a life a lifestyle of love rather than a lifestyle of lust. When the cheap conversations start, guys, walk away. You can do this. If Jesus had the courage to go to the cross, you can have the courage to walk away from a conversation. And even though people may make fun of you, secretly they'll respect you. And you'll be the person that they come to later on when they're having spiritual problems. They say, man, I just I want to follow God. I think maybe I want to try the God thing. I don't know anybody else to talk to. Your integrity will be admired, even if it's ridiculed publicly. Um, for those who are actually planning to get married, those who are, you know, working on, a, you know, say if you're engaged, get a good physical exam. Go to a doctor. I know this is embarrassing and it's scary and you don't want to do this, but go to a doctor and make sure things are okay. Um, I had a friend who had a, a problem so that her vagina was too tightly closed. She had a, what do you call that thing? Yeah, her hymen was too thick. So she had a doctor surgically remove it. Her boyfriend joked she was his surgeon virgin. <laughs> Be smart. Get a physical exam. Make sure that things are okay. If either one of you have been sexually involved in the past, make sure there are no sexually transmitted diseases to deal with. You've got to be smart these days. And make sure that you, you take advantage of the technology that's available. Get a good book on, on the basics of marital sex. Um, there are some really good ones. Tim and Beverly Hay have one. Uh, I think it's called The Act of Marriage. And there's also one called Intended for Pleasure. I think, is that by Ed Wheat? Yeah, Ed Wheat. Those are some really good ones that come from a Christian perspective. You're not going to have the pornographic pictures. I would warn you to stay away from many of the, the sex technique books because it's much more about self than it is about anything that can glorify God. But it is important to learn some things about just basic physical differences between men and women, the way they relate to sexual issues, and as well as just plain physical uh, bodies, all, all your parts. You need to know what they are and how they work. Do that. If you're going to get married, it's very important to have a plan for birth control. This could really seriously mess up your wedding night. Know what you're doing. Uh, it could also mess up your first year of marriage if you're uh, barfing for the next nine months. Just be aware of that. <laughs> um, you know, I, I would say also it's, as a part of this in general, as you read good solid books that teach you about Christian sex, avoid the... The grocery store magazines, you know, the 52 positions your boyfriend wishes you knew, don't read those. You know what? It's, it's not going to do any good for you. It's going to defy your mind. You may think, well, I need to know, don't I? No, you don't. You know what? The, the Christian sex technique that you need to know is that God has designed sex to be something that draws you closer to him and closer to one another. You should not do anything that, neither one, that either one of you does not feel comfortable with because that's not ministry. This is a no-brainer. You know, you don't say, but 
You're my wife now. You're my husband now. You should do what I want. Can't we do this this way? No. Marriage is about ministry and sex is about ministry too. It's about a tremendous intimacy when you're not just one physically, but one emotionally, spiritually. The highest experience that you can have in your walk with one another is also an experience that is extremely spiritual. You want to have something that the angels can smile on. Um, Also, just realize that if you have any issues that you need to work through, maybe if someone's been sexually abused or anything like that, make sure you get some godly counseling, anything that you need to, to be past that so that you aren't worried about it. This, this is an age, unfortunately, of sexual abuse. We'll be talking about that tomorrow morning, how sexual abuse, emotional abuse, or just the, the issues from your past, the pain of divorce or abandonment, Unfortunately, most of us grew up with some baggage. There are some things that we want to get past and some things we resolve will not carry into our own marriages that maybe we had in our families of origin. You want to get past those things and feel that you have worked through them before you try to get into your marital bed with someone else. You know, I just want to encourage you in closing. There was a time when, you know, I was like you. Most of you aren't married. I I was thinking, you know, it would be wonderful to be married, but... I don't think it's ever going to happen to me. I just, I was so sure nobody would ever want me. How could anybody actually love me? If he really gets to know me, then he'll just reject me, right? Marriage just seemed like an impossible dream. And yet, God brought me more than I could even ask or imagine. And I'm so blessed. I stand before you a person who is healed and transformed by the power of God. I'm going to share my own testimony about that tomorrow morning. But I just want to encourage you, let the Lord give you the hope and assurance that maybe you'll be married, maybe you won't. But whatever you do, the best way that you can prepare for that wedding night of your dreams is to prepare for the wedding supper of the Lamb. You know, my wedding night seemed like an impossible dream, and sometimes it seems like Jesus' second coming is an impossible dream too, doesn't it? You know, we read all about it. Yeah, that's what the Bible says is going to happen. We even have the promise. It definitely will happen. These walls that are around us, they seem like the only things that are real, but they're going to burn. What's going to be eternal is that someday Jesus will come in the clouds. He will come. He will take us to heaven. But that reality seems so impossible sometimes. It's so far away. The best way that you can prepare for that wedding night that seems so far away is to prepare for that wedding supper of the Lamb. Spend your time with Jesus now. This time of being single is a precious, wonderful time. Time to build great relationships with other people, same-sex friends, as well as opposite-sex friends. But most of all, it's a time to depend on God. Wrap your heart around Him. Cling to Him. Let Him be your security. Let Him be your strength. When you lie down at night and you're lonely, I remember how that was. Wishing... I wish there was somebody here I could talk to about how I feel, the hard things I've gone through today, the things that are going on in my life. I need somebody here. Jesus is here. Talk to him. That pain that you feel, the loneliness, the the imperfections of single life, those things are calls of God to your heart. It's the call of God saying, come to me. I will satisfy you. I will give you the intimacy that you're longing for. And then someday... After you've built that solid relationship with God, that's the surest way you can lay a foundation for having a beautiful relationship with someone else. Someday Jesus may grant you that spouse of your dreams. I would encourage you to pray for that person too. That if it's the Lord's will that someday you will marry someone else, that you will minister to them as 
they will minister to you and that both of you will minister together for the kingdom of God so that there will be more people in heaven because of your marriage than there would have been if you hadn't gotten married. Let's stand as we pray in closing. Father in heaven, you have been so good to us. You've given us so much. Lord, here we are in this room. Most of the world doesn't know that you even love them. So many of them are hungry and cold. I pray, Lord, that you will help us to minister to them, that you will draw us close to you and bring us into close relationships with one another, that we may be a tightly knit army of youth that may take your gospel to the entire world, that we may finish the work in this world and we can see that wedding supper of the Lamb, that the bride will truly have made herself ready and that every one of us will be there on that day. Lord, that is the cry of our hearts more than anything else. We ask all of this in your beautiful name. Amen. This media was produced by Audioverse and Hope Media Ministry for GYC, Generation of Youth for Christ. If you would like to listen to more great media like this presentation, or if you would like to learn more about GYC, please visit www.gycweb.org. You can also find great witnessing media at audioverse.org and at hopevideo.com.